Hi, everyone. Good morning. It's my great pleasure to introduce Joey Vachani. She is um, at Texas Children's Hospital. She completed her undergraduate education at, also in Houston at Rice and then was uh, it. You, you grew up in New Orleans, too. Went to Louisiana State University for medical school. And both her residency and her pediatric hospital medicine fellowship at Emory. Then returned to Houston, where she has been on the faculty for seven years? <laughs> Eight years. Uh, she has many leadership roles at Texas Children's Hospital, including being the director of their pediatric hospital medicine fellowship program, the director of quality and safety for the section of pediatric hospital medicine, and also the uh, education chair for quality and safety across Texas Children's Hospital. So we met each other a number of years ago through some of our national academic activities. We kind of got partnered and asked to do something together and just kind of went with it and realized we had really similar interests that overlapped in the quality improvement in education areas and have therefore known each other ever since. And my pleasure to introduce her for the very first public time as an associate professor of pediatrics. Thank you guys. I'm really excited to be here. Um, it's uh, one of my first times speaking after some traumatic events, which I'll explain to you as we talk through this. Um, but I am from Houston, um, originally from New Orleans. Um, first time seeing <clears throat> fall in a long time. So um, really excited to be here with some amazing people that you already know, but that I've known nationally for a while. So I'm a quality person and I'm an education person. So of course we have to always talk about goals and objectives, right? So usually when I start talking about quality or research or quality research, um, people kind of feel like this. So my goal is to get you to this <laughs> because I, that's how I feel about quality education and quality education topics. Um, so hopefully even if it's not quite as excited and happy, um, a little bit more towards that side will be great. Um, wanted to tell you a little bit about my story. So I started um, eight years ago at Texas Children's Hospital, and our hospital medicine group was just a handful of people at that time, and now it's over 40. We have three sites, so there's it's a rapid growth in the less than, de less than a decade that I've been there. And my story is that how did I get introduced and excited about quality topics was um, we, it was handoffs. And handoffs are all the rage now, so it's not so innovative at this time. But at that time, it was just sort of taking off and we had no handoff process and I just did not understand. Um, I was just feeling like that sad, frustrated emoji and I just could not understand how that was possible. How is it possible that we don't have a system or some sort of way of handing over patients? And so that's how, that's how it kind of started. I took um, an advanced quality improvement course that was available for faculty at the time. Never really had a lot of quality exposure prior to that. I had done a fellowship, so it was sort of just starting off, but this was a long time ago. So um, so it really wasn't where it is now. And so that's where it kind of be began. As my per blur uh, burning platform, I just really got frustrated with it. And then I had really supportive people in my group that said, okay, what do you want to do? How are you going to change it? What do you want to, um, where do you want to get us? And sort of ran with it. Um, and that sort of became where I got introduced to quality and how I became interested in it. Um, 
And, you know, then sort of the story kind of lulled, you know, things happened, life happened, had kids, you know, I did a master's of education, I was doing my thing. And then those publications just sort of never came until I had a really good mentor last year that sort of was just like sat me down and said, look, this is what's holding you up from all the other things you want to do. And I'm like, I don't really need to publish. I'm doing good work. It's fine. And part of it was I just didn't have the mentorship. The other part was I just was a little bit scared because I didn't know how to do it. I didn't understand how to do it. And so really um, sat down with this mentor um, that actually was from here, who I'll mention later, and, um, and just make, really just did it. And so last year was um, personally a challenging year, but professionally an excellent year, um, because really it started off with the publication of that handoff project from many, many years ago, in addition to another project, which was my, kind of my baby, which I think you guys are working on here, uh, a pediatric quality and safety curriculum for the residents. Um, and then also the, the curricular piece of that was published in MedEd Portal. And so really, like just, I, I had all the stuff there. I just was really scared and didn't really know how to navigate the system of quality pu publications. And I joke, but it's true because a lot of times I feel the education people think I'm more quality and the quality people think I'm more education. But it's just because there's not a lot of people doing what I'm interested in and what I'm doing. But regardless, there's a place that will publish your stuff. There's a, an audience that wants it and needs it. Um, and so I would just encourage you to learn from some of the experience that I'll share with you today because I really feel like it can help you if this is an interest of yours. Uh, the other part of my story is the, the traumatic events of the last month. So, um, and I say this because I feel like it's important for you to know me um, in this platform. And I, um, so I'm from Houston and our house and cars did flood. We were evacuated via a raft. There was my little kids and our neighbor's child. Um, I was in the raft because I was five feet tall and I would have had the water over my head. So, um, so that's us evacuating and kind of having a, um, an amazing adventure and then coming back to a lot of, um, a lot of sadness, a lot of challenges that we are still facing. Um, but I do think just like any of the topics you probably hear about in this platform, um, it's, it's mixed, right? So there's a lot of good, there's a lot of hard things that you have to kind of get through. Um, but I think it's important for us to share stories. I really learn, like learning from all of you as well. So I'm excited to sort of have some dialogue today um, as we talk through this. So the other real goal uh, for the talk today is, um, and I guess it's not projecting, but this guy over here says dissemination leading to scholarship. And so the goal is to really ha have you develop some strategies for your work. And the objectives are going stepwise through these steps that we will start going through. I have no disclosures. <laughs> and so the first step is the traditional versus QI research. And so um, if you look at it by intent, um, all of us want to improve care and produce generalizable knowledge. So when we do some routine practices and things like that, that's fine. Like we're, oh, I see this handoff's an issue. I'm going to start doing my own thing. Lovely. But it's not very systematic, and you really can't translate that to other populations or other institutions. So then research. Research produces a large amount of generalizable knowledge. Um, but how do you translate that to your local population? So QI does that. It, it does it for your lo local population, but then the nice part of QI and research is where it does both, right? So you're improving your local problems, issues, and then you bring it out and bring it for other people, other, other groups in your institution, other institutions, et cetera. So again, just to kind of look at traditional versus QI research. In traditional research, you're studying a question. You have AIM hypothesis. We're very used to that, right? 
QI research is actually extremely similar and quite rigorous. So I know that um, it's relatively new for the healthcare field, um, but it's actually a very, very rigorous kind of process. And it's very similar to the research we're all sort of more comfortable with. So you do describe a need or a gap. Um, there's an infrastructure change is usually the focus. Um, the process is usually iterative, and um, data presentation be, may be more reflective of the infrastructure change. And usually the sample sizes could meet, can be smaller, although there are collaboratives and other where the sample sizes are extremely big. Usually in the small PDSAs when you're just doing something locally, the sample sizes are smaller. And really, it's all about the data. So in research, um, in QI research, it's, it's this way. You show the data, you plot the data, you graph the data, and then you just display it to make the process visible. And I'll go through this with you today, but really you're trying to see if the change you did truly made an improvement, and if you're holding that improvement many days, weeks, months out, um, and then the, word, the fancy word for that is, are you sustaining that change? So just to kind of go through, and um, don't worry about what's written in the um, in the this this stuff over here that's a little bit shady. But um, the object, kind of just looking through a couple of research studies. So this these are mostly from TCH um, groups that started them. And so uh, this is a asthma study that was done in the ER, very traditional research methodology. Um, so there are hypotheses that are um, defined. And then really the methods you can tell that this is a traditional research methodology because there's a randomized intervention usual study um, and there are elements of QI there because they have an asthma action plan and follow-up interviews. Um, and again, you can do it, you can present, you can design and present your QI work in many ways. So this is just a couple of different examples that we're talking about today. Versus a mixed methods um, study. I was just talking to Joanna and she was telling me all the lovely qualitative, the qualitative work that she's doing so mixed methods is becoming extremely, um, like, it's something that's used quite often now because we need more than just the N and the numbers that we change. We want to find out more about what's truly going on with our patients or our providers or our families. And so this was a mixed methods um, that tried to look at PCPs and who used um, high, highly used the e ER and lowly use the ER. So how, how many PCPs referred patients more to the ER and less to the ER? And again, this, they describe very nicely in the methods, this was a mixed method study. Um, and so they're looking at, um, sorry, they're looking at admission rates, they're looking at um, interviews. Um, so they're using the quantitative piece um, would be more of the admission rates, um, if they did length of stay, things like that. Um, whereas the interviewing piece is the more qualitative part of the study. And then pure QI methodology, this was the um, Texas Children's implementation of the ER shock protocol. And so this was very much um, a quali quality um, kind of methodology, um, quality improvement, I should say. And so the physicians met to identify barriers. They created some solutions. And the results is kind of where I found really how they laid out nicely how this was quali quality improvement. Um, so they'd had a triage system. They recruited. They had lab studies. They documented. Um, and so really... Um, Points in kind of bringing these studies to you are that there are many ways to design and present your data for QI, and then also all types of methodology are encouraged. It's not that there's you have to follow Squire guidelines if you're familiar with that. It is if you want to do straight quality, quality improvement methodology for this sort of a journal and this sort of a paper, but there are many ways to present your work, as you've seen with my work, but also in many ways that we can talk about and we will, there are many ways to show the work that you're doing and really get, get credit for the work that you're doing. 
Um, quantitative QI methodologies um, utilize collaboratives, registries, databases. So these, like I said, the sample sizes are not necessarily small. Um, they can use both, you can use both qualitative and quantitative methods in the same study to collect and analyze data. Some often used quantitative methodologies are before and after, um, and before, after with a control time series, et cetera. So I'm just going to give you an example, because I think there's a lot of talk, and then, um, like, I look, I'm a, I'm a very visual learner, but then I also feel that I learn from examples and stories. So you're trying to do a pre-post test. So, okay, I did something before, I, I did something, and now I'm going to look at the state of X before and after without a comparison. So example, let's say we're looking at the length of stay in hours before and after um, you implement some evidence-based care guidelines for asthma. So you have, here's the time you implemented, and this is your data pre-intervention, the length of stay is really big, and then post-intervention, your data, your um, length of stay is really much better. <laughs> I would say really small, but really much better. So, um, so who would agree that this is a good intervention that you did? Most of us would. Most of us would. Um, the problem with doing just pre-post is, um, so this is, let's say, on the inpatient side. I'm a hospitalist. On the inpatient side, we improved. Yay, we're great. But then, oh, by the way, the observation unit, which we don't have anymore, but at the time we did, the observation unit where we did no implementation of the guideline, we didn't do any of that, had also this decrease that had nothing to do necessarily with the implementation. So you can look at that and say, okay, well, maybe it was because they heard about it, or maybe they were using it and we didn't know they were using it. Maybe, 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 but you don't know because you didn't find out the state of your system. So important points about this include that it is really looking at the system as a whole. It's looking at the entire infrastructure and really thinking about what is, what is, you can do pre-post, there's just better ways of doing it. And so the other part I would encourage you to do is thinking about looking at changes over time. Because I bet if you kind of followed this, either it would stay or decrease or increase, whatever, but you don't know, You're, these are just, okay, this was before at this, at you know, one, one month before, one month after, let's say. But you don't know what happened two months after, what happened, what was already happening. Um, so that's where these kind of more QI methodology, QI data display methods really help. I love this chart. This is about hand washing. Uh, it really illustrates a lot of the things that I love about quality. So here is an example over many, many years, right? So you have 2006 to 2011 on the x-axis. And this is the compliance with hand hygiene. Simple, we all do it. All of us are hand hygiene experts, right? So we were really, you know, we're at 50%, which isn't terrible, but it's it's not great. Um, uh, and then we, we did a little bit better, but really then we started going up. So let's look at this from a QI methodology. You start doing a bundle of interventions over a long period of time. So you put new alcohol-based hand rubs on, you do feedback, you do some marketing, you do some financial incentives, and all of a sudden you're hitting 100%. So if you stop here, you can say, okay, it's been three years, we did a really good job, I'm happy with my QI project. But really here's the nice part, right? When you follow it over time, you can truly say that you've sustained that change. So there's two important things to glean from this chart versus um, this control chart. And these are called control charts because they have upper and lower limit controls. Don't worry too much about it. But suffice to say that you're, what you can see here is these lines are really wide and these are narrow. What does that mean? That means that your deviation and your 
your ability to de you're standardizing more, right? You're you're controlling it more. The the process is better controlled because your standard deviations are lower. It is also sustained because you're really for minus a couple of them, you're really here in between these control chart lines. And so this gives me a lot more information than a pre-post, right? So if I had just done a pre here and a post here, okay, we did great, or we actually did worse, sorry. <laughs> we didn't do 30% compliance is worse than 50% compliance. Or even if we did it like here, here and here, okay, we're doing better, but still not at 100%. It really doesn't tell you as much about what's happened over time. So did I really sustain this change? Did I really make a change? Or was it an isolated event? So this is the benefit of doing a quality improvement project in a way that you can really see the system more clearly um, and you can really kind of understand the system a little bit better. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time discussing barriers and strategies with you. I've had many barriers myself, um, but just wanted to take a minute and ask the audience, just by raising your hand, we're a pretty close-knit group here now, um, what barriers you're facing or intend to face with your QI scholarship. I heard um, folks say that you are going to, you are an MOC um, portfolio institution, so what sort of barriers do you feel, what's holding you back? <laughs> well, I, time, time. Okay, yeah, we, I agree with that. Time. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Measurement. Measurement. Like so, doing the measurement and getting the data and actually having it be right. Okay, right okay. Measure. And data is always an issue for us, too. Um, I'm going to go through a little bit of sort of our challenges, but they're probably similar to yours. We have Epic but it's hard. There's something called the front door now. I don't, I don't know. There's always these new words that I'm trying to understand. And so the front door is the front door to the data, um, but who controls the front door? So the problem with giving data, right, is um, who are you giving it to? How are they going to use it? How do you know what they do with it? Is it massaged or not true? And so there's a lot of general, genuinely ethical questions surrounding that, but wouldn't it be so nice to have an epic-generated report for X? Um, because then it would make our lives a lot easier. So data, time is always an issue. I'll get back to time, I agree with you. Um, but there are ways to chunk out your time and really make it happen. Anything else that's a big burning platform, burning barrier for Sharing you? Sharing data. Sharing, so can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, people have to do a deep dive to find the information versus having it right there. Yeah. And it's yeah. time to look it up. Okay, okay. So having the data more available, um, more transparent, um, being able to share it. Anything else? Buy-in. Buy-in. Buy-in from stakeholders in various areas, be it your local group, your institution, etc. Yeah, buy-in is also very hard but important. So some of these, some of these um, barriers are for the QI project itself, and some of them are for the scholarship piece. But I think they're all important because um, I feel that we are all doing really good work, and we just need to put it out there. Um, there's other places that you know every month when I was just stuck in this limbo of not putting my data and my publishing my stuff is I would just like reopen the newest insert. Um, your favorite journal here. You know, I'd open the newest journal and then I'd go, ah, that's what we're doing, but we didn't publish it. So it's not that it, it demeans your work, it just, it would be so nice, because I learned from those articles quite a bit, um, and especially the next steps, like, oh, this is what we've done, these are the things we need to keep doing. It pushes the science forward, right? So um, very important to publish, feel like we have a lot of the same barriers, so we can talk a little bit about the strategies. I sort of mentioned it, but what strategies do you guys have? So whoever yelled out time from here, uh, can I ask you to tell me a little bit about what we can do to, to help? 
I think what we were talking about here yeah. is that for those of us in the outpatient setting where we have really pretty much full-time clinical responsibilities every yeah. single day, yeah. um, it's hard to carve out time to do that because yeah. my patient care duties are every single day that I'm yeah. here at this institution. Yeah. Any thoughts on strategies for, for the outpatient full clinic load? Wow, silence. <laughs> I think you can find someone else to do the work. Find someone else to do the QI work or the patient work? Yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but yeah, go, uh, there's lots of hands. Yes, sir. I'm working on it. She's working on it. She's helping us. If the data was more accessible or automated. Could fit more easily with any kind of a practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your teams would be participating because it's presumably data they're collecting and records with clinical care anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just So the dead, the, right, the data piece is extremely important. Allison, were you going to say something? No, just the, you know, there's the whole thing we talk about <coughs> some of the more institutional quality improvement programs, which is, and people have heard that I'm sure, you know, you spend X hours a week doing your job, but you should spend time to spend about an hour improving the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So considering it a piece of your work, but how do you get more time for that? I understand that piece. The other thing I was going to add is, I don't know about you guys, but we have always have like a super motivated group of medical students um, that are interested and want to help. Um, and so I think that, again, if you have things that are more accessible, like the, the data is there. You know, it's just a matter of learning and mentoring. And I think a lot of us love mentoring and teaching, right? So that, then it wouldn't seem so much of, as another task as opposed to mentoring someone, whether it's a, um, a, a medical student, resident, junior faculty, whoever that is, um, in kind of working together. But, but, I, but that's a really nice way to, to kind of frame it, is to say this is a piece of my work, you know, and how do I, um, how do I make those things easier systematically, be it with the data, et cetera, um, but this is part of something I want to do. Because, you know, it, it always hurts me when we do MOC and it's like, oh, I'm going to do the hand-washing module. I'm like, but why? Like, you know, you have, you're doing all this great work. Like, why can't we just use that somehow? And I think there are things, and we'll talk about some of them, um, that are trying to make MOC more meaningful, which is, is what it's supposed to be. Um, but that's the challenge I have also because um, it shouldn't be an extra thing. It should be something that's sort of built into your daily practice. Anything else to add? Um, so some available resources that might be helpful for you just to kind of talk through. Um, data keeps coming up, so we'll just jump in. So our data source, this is how we do it. Um, but again, this has been a changing thing while I've been there, and the last three years have been extremely interesting because I've seen it much more firsthand. But we have this submit a request thing right here on our, on our um, intranet, and then it kind of takes you to this thing, which is another IT report. And the whole thing to me is quite confusing, and this is easier than it used to be four years ago, you know, so, um, or even a year ago. And, um, but now what's been happening for us is, is like I was talking about this front door piece, is how do we ensure, and there's a queue that's a million people long, you know, waiting for, well, my fellow needs 
this project, and so where does that go in the queue for re report requests? Um, what we had for a while, which was nice, was um, an epic champion, and so both at the hospital level and then also at the local levels and pretty much all the sections had a representative, and so then that would sort of get us the in um, to get the data a little bit more quickly and easily. And the other part that was nice about that with having a liaison from the, um, and you guys use Epic, right? Yeah, so you know. Um, so then the other part that was nice about having someone directly in our section was that um, when it, they had a clinical understanding of what we actually needed, and they could, they could, they wouldn't validate it, but they could kind of pre-validate the data and say, "Oh, this makes no sense because." And so I think that was extremely helpful for us because it just it, you need someone who's in it to understand what you're trying to get. Because Epic has everything, but then what are you actually trying to get, and what's the meaningful piece of that data? The other part is the IRB. I'm surprised nobody mentioned this because that was always like, that's always for my fellows and, and a lot of our faculty also. It's the IRB, I don't want to do the IRB. So just so you know, IRB is dependent on your institution. So there are some hospitals where QI, they're like, oh, there's, this is exempt, QI review is not needed. There are some that it sort of depends, and then there are some, like you guys and us, who it still has to go through IRB. And usually what happens is, um, you know, again, remember, intent to publish has nothing to do with IRB. It's about protecting the research subject. And then talk with IRB early if you're unsure how to approach. Um, so I, we have a lot of IRB specialists that I'll, I called up previously, but they've always said just submit the IRB. So may or may not be useful. However, we do have some special wording that we use and keep using the word quality improvement or quality assurance and, and things like that. And so um, they usually get um, get through pretty easily, um, but it's hard because a lot of people don't quite under that are on IRB boards um, don't quite understand QI, um, and so it, it, what I have done in those times is really talk with them. I said, "Hey, I got this," um, and it's not a rejection. It's just here's ten addendums, and I said, "Well, it's not really that's not what I'm trying to do. Can you help me figure this out?" And that's been helpful. One time I got an IRB the handoff study, which was my burning platform. I got that IRB went through in a week. My quality education one, which was a curriculum one, which involved residents who are vulnerable populations, took forever, you know? And I was like, it's an educational study. I don't understand. But it's, it's just, it's so hard that, but I do think that for us, and it sounds like talking with some of um, the faculty here, for you guys as well, you do have to put it through IRB and, um, and just say, hey, it's exempt or hey, it's fine. And so for... Um, for me, like I also used to, I still kind of get angst trying to write an IRB, but then I realized a lot of it is actually how I would write an abstract for my whatever, be it a, um, a poster or a paper or whatever. So some of it is just stuff that will help you in the long run. Some of it's wording that you just need to know. So we have a cheat sheet that one of the ER doctors made for us on how to navigate the IRB. Um, so we use that wording a lot, um, and it helps because it just it's a different language sometimes. Um, so for us, um, on our internet, we have um, research versus QAQI. And so this table was really helpful for me. And I don't, I didn't see it, but I don't, I didn't look very much into it because I wasn't sure what I was allowed to see and not on the Dartmouth IRB site. But, um, but maybe something like this would be helpful just for you guys internally, just to say, hey, this is our cheat sheet like we've made. Uh, but essentially, it's, it's, it is, it is different. And, and I think that that's the part that, um, you know, we need to get to a point where we have a QI IRB that expedites XYZ, but we're not there um, for us. And so this helps us tremendously. When I looked at um, your, 
available information online, I found the Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects. So it seems like this is your IRB, the CPHS. And so um, I couldn't easily find like a QAQI thing, but I think that that's something that is, it would be helpful, or at least on a, hey, this is how to do the um, IRB for the learners. And I mean, it helped me tremendously for faculty. So that might be something, if that's of interest, that you might want to have um, work on together. Um, so Squire, I think if you um, don't know what Squire is, it's basically the way to write for quality improvement reporting. And there's been a 2.0. I don't know if there's a 3.0. Last I checked, it's a 2.0. Um, but it's basically the standards for quality improvement reporting excellence. And all you have to do is Google it, and it's there. Um, so this is a, I'm not going to click on the site because that's me Googling it to find it. Um, but it's very similar to research, traditional research writing. There's an intro, there's a method, there are results. And it's how did you start? What did you do? What did you find? What does it mean? Same stuff. It's just that it, it's more specific. So what is your setting? Who did you impact? What, you know, it's, it's those sort of nuances that make it a QI research study versus um, both for design and publication versus um, traditional research methodology. But very simple. Don't get scared about it. You have such amazing quality people here. So please use them. And they are, I'm sure, more than happy to help you publish. Remember, there are lots of formats, so it's not all just a paper. Um, I did a whole bunch of workshops. I actually, for a while, loved doing workshops. Now I'm a little workshopped out. But um, I used to love doing workshops because it really helped me um, understand more of the audience that I was trying to publish for. So we did many things. We did posters. I did the platform. I've done all of these things with my QI education study. And it was extremely helpful because it helped me understand um, what challenges people were facing with their own curricula in the, um, in the country. And then also, it helped me formulate my next steps much better as well. So I can send, if, if you're interested, I can send this as a handout that I have. But there are a lot of journals, summarize to say, there are a lot of journals that want to publish your QI work. It's just a matter of figuring out um, what you've done and where it fits. And then also, who's the audience, right? Like, you don't want to be publishing in um, a health services research thing if it's not really fitting what you're doing. So um, I'm obviously in pediatrics, so I looked at the pediatric journals first. And I'm um, going to put a plug in for a couple of them. So hospital pediatrics is Sean Ralston's baby. You guys have her here. Pick her brain. Um, and it's awesome. Like, we, I'm a hospitalist, so of course I think it's awesome. But, but it is awesome. And there's a lot of, like, things that touch the hospitalist field that are pre and post. So um, it's not all hospital stuff. There's things that are coming in from the outpatient ER, going to the ICU that really impacts the hospitalist. So I'd really urge you to look at some of the articles there and consider submitting. There's a new, newer, now it's not quite as new, but newer um, journal called Pediatric Quality and Safety, um, which I feel like is the perfect journal for these sort of um, topics and where I ended up publishing my quality education um, manuscript. And so it, it is, it's, it's newer. So it also is looking for articles. And so if you have something that's pretty nicely designed and you're proud of it and it never hurts to submit, think about also um, general medical journals um, and also specialty journals. So um, some things that a couple of our groups have been working with surgeons, so they publish, or ER, they publish specifically for ER surgery journals. And again, it depends who is your, what do you try, who do you want to impact? Who do you want to read this? Nursing journals, we've done a lot of collaborative work, um, and 
the nursing piece is also huge and tremendous. So just think about other places you might not normally think about if you're really trying to publish this work and get it out there. There's a, again, there's a ton of quality and safety um, journals on here that um, if you're interested, I can send this. I, I've previously put it as a, a handout. So um, the other place I found when I was struggling to figure out where to submit and when I gotten rejected, because I, I submitted and I thought it'd be accepted in five minutes. You know, I'm like, this is my third baby. This is the thorn in my side. This is beautiful work. And then I get a rejection. I'm like, this is crazy. They are crazy. They don't know what, what they're talking about, you know, and you always feel like that. And then now that I've done it, I'm like, oh, I just expect a rejection, you know. Um, but this was a nice thing I found as I was sort of learning more about how and where to submit. Um, and it's freely available on the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, site. And uh, you can, basically, that's what it's the resource, under the resources, where to submit your writing. And there, it's pretty cool. They have it by impact factor. They have a lot of nice information um, on this site. So if you're interested in other resources, this is a nice resource for you to look. And then think about when you're targeting the, what you want when you're choosing a journal, right? So besides the audience, which is extremely important, things that you can find out readily available online is um, the number of articles that they publish per year. Is it Medline indexed? What's the impact factor? So the, how impactful is that journal? Like how many reads does it have? How many... Um, how much is it cited again, things like that. Turnaround time, you can suggest reviewers for most journals. And if you're, if you're accepted, ask, ask if they um, electronically publish ahead of print, just so you can feel great. And also you can put it in your CV and things like that. So I know not everybody's at the publishing point, but I think it's important to think about those things even as you're designing your study. Um, so just wanted to put that out there to, to really kind of urge you guys to, to, um, to submit. So everybody remembers this when um, first MOC came out, then everybody was like, why are we doing it? And the internal medicine folks had a lot to say. And um, so, um, you know, my, like I said, my thoughts are, I think it's helpful if it's done right. Um, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to make it done right. And we're still sort of figuring that out. And so um, break, broken down, because I feel like I didn't understand MOC either for a while, is that um, it's four parts. There's a part one that is professional standing. So you have a license, you paid for your license, you're good. Part two is the modules essentially that you do a self-assessment. So those are, I think, pretty easy too because you just kind of click and there are many free ones. If you're members of AAP or ABP or wherever member you are, there's usually some that you can do without much cost, if not any cost. Part three is your exam. So that is also pretty self-explanatory. Um, and then part four is the part that everybody has problems with because that's when it's like trying to make it meaningful and have you show your performance in your own practice. And this is where everybody starts getting upset and doing something last minute. Um, and that's not what it was meant to be. Um, just as a reminder, it begins for anybody who's been certified as of 2010, five-year cycle. It's still some of these things are a work in progress and it keeps sort of thought thinking about changing or changing. So um, just be sure to kind of review with your um, chiefs and things what the most up-to-date information is. But right now, it's 100 points that you have to get in five years. And 20 of those are part two, that moduly thing. <laughs> I mean, 40 of those. And then 40 have to be part four. And then the other 20 can be either part two or four. Um, and then there's some crossover in the subspecialties. So part four is the one that causes angst for everyone, I feel. So um, you can do some web-based activity, um, but then the two that I kind of wanted to highlight are one of them you just touched upon is you guys have an institutional portfolio now, just like we do. And so if you have a project, yes, it's a little bit about a work, but if you have a project that's meaningful for you and your group, please submit it because then 
all the people in your group, if they do X, Y, Z, will get credit for it as well. Um, and we did this with our quality improvement curriculum. This is how we got, someone was asking about buy-in. This is how we got a lot of buy-in, is by offering MOC. And yes, they had to teach some you know, sessions and they had to do certain things, but it was things that they anyway want to do. And, and we are very much believer in like claiming double dipping, triple dipping. So they taught a session, they got it on their educational portfolio for promotion. They also could use it for MOC, like not just one session, but whatever was outlined. So I really, feel, and ultimately, yes, you're helping the learner and the patient. So that's always important, but it's the, how do you get people to buy in? So MOC has been a very helpful way to get people to buy into QI project work. Um, the other thing I would urge some of you who may already have some stuff done to look at is the, it's called the MOC Activity Manager. Um, and that's the website. And this is the specific one after you go into that website, but it's getting credit for stuff you've already done. So if you've done an article, a post, or a platform, you submit some information on it, and you can look at what the criteria for that are, and then you can get credit. There is a cost. It's last time I checked, it was about $75, but for one of one of our projects, there were five of us on a poster, and it was at a peer-reviewed you know, national conference, and it was $75 split five ways. And sometimes the section paid for it, sometimes we paid for it, but I mean, instead of doing an unnecessary thing you don't want to do, you should get credit for the things that you're already working on, I feel. And so um, this was a nice one that we've used quite often, and I found very helpful. Additionally, there are, if you're a member of AAP, EKIP modules and practice things are very helpful, especially in outpatient settings. I'm in the EKIP planning group, and so we are working together to get some more um, inpatient, meaningful inpatient things and started with bronchiolitis. And so... Um, the outpatient's been up and running and pretty good for a while, and ABP has several options as well. So um, American Board of Pediatrics also has options. So lots of ways to get credit so you don't have to do the hand-washing, hand hygiene module that <laughs> everybody does last minute. You know, I feel like make it meaningful and, and learn something from the process is kind of what my goal for you would be. Other resources that I've, we've developed at Texas Children's is this is a template for a quality improvement project um, and, as a poster. And so I've shared this with my group, and it's been helpful because um, it's not meant to be presented the same way as a general research or even an educational research project. And so um, we just made it on a Word document. I mean, these are things that easily you guys could do, and probably there's stuff online too. We just made it um, ourselves, but kind of left some blocks to help that beginning learner, faculty kind of just start um, figuring out how to present their work. The other thing I did, again, just on a simple Word document, uh, when I started writing my manuscripts or even my IRBs, is just took the pieces of the Squire guidelines and put them on a Word document. And so, again, you see the general kind of... Um, outline is the same as any sort of research project, but then you start sort of breaking down into the introduction is about the background and then the problem. And so um, very easy to do, you know, happy to share, but it's, it's not that difficult to just kind of pull it off a squire, put it on your Word document. Um, so those are some of the strategies that I would um, recommend for you to kind of get your QI project to the next level for dissemination and scholarship. Um, and so I just wanted to review some of the pearls. And again, I usually send this out as a handout. So if you find it helpful, um, I can either email you or I can um, send it to Allison to send out. Um, and then, um, so I'm just going to go through some of it. Somebody had brought up time. And um, so for me, um, it was more of a time thing in my head than it was a real time thing. Like I was, I, we're always busy at work. I mean, that's, that's true. And I was much more clinically loaded um, when all this was happening. And so... Um, I think for me, planning has been key. I mean, to my life, really, not just 
publishing. But the more I planned, the easier it was to write. Um, and the more thoughtfully I designed my study at the beginning, the easier it was to publish. That QI education curriculum was so hard because it was an educational study. And there were different learners, some of them dropped out, some of them didn't do it, you know, those kind of things. And so it was extremely challenging. But if I had planned it, if I had made sure every survey was almost perfect every time, you know, it would have, the data would be so much easier to, to figure out and, and glean. And so I really think that's, that's important. The other ones that I find out of this big list that are especially important are trying to have a statistician early. That's one of my biggest barriers. And we've tried to kind of think about um, creative ways on how to get stat statistical support. Um, so one of them has been to, we've been talking about this, hadn't happened yet, but to have a few of our sections share a statistician and have pieces of their time. Um, we also, if you go through the AAP, I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's a project work, it's through EKIP, but there is, if you submit your project through there, they actually give you some statistical and data support. Um, so that's interesting. And then, um, so, but it's important and helpful to even for the design part to have your statistician, if you can there, use a template. I use the Squire one into a Word document like I showed you. And then identifying author expectations. This has been an interesting one for me. So there were a lot of um, expectations, but not a lot of work sometimes done on the parts of authors. Uh, several of us have faced that. And I at least look relatively young. I'm not necessarily, but um, so it's very hard sometimes for people to understand like, hey, I'm gonna do this work on this timeline. If you're not, like we have to renegotiate sort of what your role is, um, but it's important to have those discussions early at the beginning and then hold yourself accountable. We have a authorship agreement that we sign you guys might have one, and that, I mean, it didn't help in the, my specific situation, but it did because I, I, I kept bringing it up, but, and it still can get sticky, but I think it's important. If you're doing the work, you should get credit for the work that you're doing. Um, and then identifying an experienced mentor or author who has time. So my, my um, mentor, or new mentor, I have several, was Gotham Suresh, who was here for you guys in NEO, and now he's at Texas Children's, and he was just like, I'm mentoring you. I'm like, I look that bad that I need mentoring, you know, but, but he did and he made me sit down we took up chunks of time um, and wrote together and I wrote my stuff and he wrote his stuff and if I didn't meet him in his office then I emailed him my paragraph because it was that level of accountability that really changed the way I thought about publishing and so um, that's my other part is find time to write because I, I actually really like writing not scientific writing necessarily but I really like writing it was just like you know, I have two young kids that we all have all this stuff going on and work is juggling a whole bunch of different roles and patients and things. And I just could not sit for four hours and write. And so what I did was it was 30 to 60 minutes once or twice a week. And that's it. And it really changed the way that that, that things happened after that. Um, I also in, encourage you to keep lots of notes um, or you're gonna forget. So anytime you're doing QI projects, things keep changing and that's the, the nature of the QI, but you need to keep notes of that. And then manuscript writing we've talked a lot about, but you know, just kind of general tips are avoiding jar jargon and um, expect to have numerous drafts and rejections. Um, and then think about getting how, if you're doing QI, if you can get MOC credit for your projects with some of the, some of the things that we just talked about. So it, this is very true, and I didn't believe it, but, but now I believe it, um, and I think it's very important because the failure to publish is there are consequences, and um, really the last three are the ones I'll focus on uh, today, and it slows the spread of known improvements. It inhibits discovery of innovation, so really it's an ethical issue because you're failing to give lessons learned back 
to the public. So we need to move the science forward. We're all, we're all very, you know, we want to do what's right for our patients. We want to do um, what's right for our learners. Um, I think that it's important to keep moving that science forward, and it's a failure on our part if we don't. So I like the way that you framed it with it's a part of our job because it is. And, um, and really it's finding that time and the buy-in and all the other things that we talked about. Um, what can we do to make it easier, be it the data or something else? Um, but it is a part of our job, and I agree with that. And so if this works, I was just going to share the last part of my story since we have a few minutes and, um, and then just finish up. So this is a little video I made. I hope the volume works. Do I need to do something to make the volume work? Perfect. Thank you. Let's see if it works. So I told you I really like uh, I really like stories, and so that's the part of my story. Um, and the other part is, um, so I'm telling you to you can publish anything, <laughs> but um, but we I so I um, I I was just I, writing is really therapeutic for me actually, and so I. Um, wrote about my experiences and submitted it to Ms. Dr. Kevin Foe, and he published it on Kevin MD. So um, I'm not keeping the publishing limited to QI, I guess. But, um, but I think that there are so many places for us to get our stories out there. The QI story is incredibly important for our patients. Um, I really want to thank my QI mentors. Um, who are in various sections or divisions, um, so I encourage you to find them wherever they are. My hospital medicine mentors are Chief Dr. Quinones, my ER mentor is Dr. Macias, I have a Neo mentor with Dr. Suresh. Um, so I just have a lot of really good people 
um, that have time for me and make time for me and give me tremendous opportunities to take things and run with them. And um, so I encourage you to look for those people because they're there, they're here. Um, I love my family. All of you guys have been excellent. And I leave you with this quote. Uh, you can't ever reach perfection, but you can believe in an asymptote toward which you are ceaselessly striving by Paul Kalanithi from, if you haven't read it, please read it, When Breath Becomes Air. Excellent book. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been awesome. I look forward to walking around with Allison and meeting more folks. And please email me, reach out to me if you have questions, just want to chat. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. That was an amazing presentation. Um, I have a comment and a question. The comment is that our institution actually does a very nice job helping you get MOC credit. Wendy Murphy is our contact person. I know Carolyn has worked with them. Matt's done stuff with them, and I've done stuff with them as well. Um, I had uh, two learners on there, and for the residents or fellows or in the audience, you can bank your MOC Part 4 credit for when you graduate and have a real job. So. It actually works really, really well, and our institution does a very nice job helping navigate through that MOC time. Um, my question is actually about the IRB, because I, um, from an ethics standpoint, it's interesting. Um, research is research except when it's not, and it's called QI. And I appreciate you kind of trying to delineate it, and it looks very nice on the graph, that it's pretty cut and dry. This is QI, this right. is traditional research. but. It seems like there's still a large area of overlap, and neither the researchers nor the IRB committees really know what to do with that gray area in between, and I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Sure. Area. I, mean, I, think, I think that what ultimately needs to happen is there would be a QI board, right? So then you just kind of punch what people are deeming as QI studies, and then you can we don't have that. I mean, and it's a, it's a while away. I mean, in my ideal world, I'd also like a QI promotion track. Like, I feel like that needs to be there, you know? But, but I think, and I think that would ultimately be what needs to happen, and then you can decide, you know, if the people in this QI board or subboard, whatever you want to call it, um, are like, you know, this is actually more research, let's give it to you, that's fine. But um, until we get there, there's going to be a lot of that overlap, you know? And I think that there are a few, a handful of institutions, I think, right, Sean, that have this QI board. Like, when I was at one of the national meetings, it was like two, maybe one. No, I think it's more than that. You, the UT systems had one for more than yeah, that's six true. years. I thought it was like that one, and then there was another one in Kansas. It's interesting, though, because the issues, um, you know, like I served on an IRB in the UT system that then had a QI board. And so the, 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 our IRB had exactly your approach. You know, the, human, the question is, we are the Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects. Right. You know, if this is human subjects research, it's a question. But then the issue is, should there be external review for what you're doing? If, you know, and so those are two separate issues. And, are, 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 you know, and yeah, there probably should be an external review for, for what you're doing. I mean, so like the, the, a, the AAP actually makes almost every project go through their IRB because they consider the positions the human subjects in the research. So, so, so I think in QI, you can sometimes consider the positions the human subjects in research. Yeah. 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 I, I, I push back a little bit on that. In that every patient you, you care for individually is in some ways an experiment. And, and we don't require our review of every interaction individually. And if we, if we keep putting this this ends up being sometimes a regulatory burden that's going to interfere with part of our work is in fact improving our work. 
you could argue that some of it is inclusive in the consent that the patient gives you for providing care to them. They assume that you're improving the care that you're giving to them, and it's not an additional, it's not an additional oversight that's required. It depends on where you come from. So if you come from the thinking that anytime you interact with people with research, then clearly QI is always going to be research. If you come from the fact that people consent to us providing care to them without an RFP, now there's other oversight society, that I could argue that significant components of it is part of ensuring that the care you're giving is improving. And it's unethical to give the care without constantly improving the care you're giving. So, so I, and I would probably submit this is my soapbox, that even though <laughs> the Dartmouth College Human Subjects Protection Board would want to see most of the protocols, Dartmouth Hitchcock has a long history of QI and a long history of QI that did not require going for a 24. I don't think that the, the Value Institute assumes that every project you do on this campus goes to the IRB. And I would not suggest that I require as a department chair that every project you do comes through my office as an IRB. But it's interesting what they choose. So I've done two QI projects. One involved HIV screening in a patient population. That one got IRB exemption, took a week, super easy, right? We've gotten that one. It's on its way to get published. The one that I did on an educational forum about ethics, I had to do the full human subjects module, which took me hours of time to do to put an ethics curriculum together for our residents. So again, the IRBs, right, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I know our residents are vulnerable, but they're not that vulnerable. But, yeah. Remember, it's a human endeavor. So we, we get frustrated thinking that the IRB, or the IRB gods, came to clarity about what's research and what's not. It's a group of people in a room who on a given day is going to be a different group of people and may also be in a different mood depending on what circumstances. So I wouldn't use the decisions of a particular IRB as, as indicative of what's either ethical or appropriate. It's, it's human it's human judgment. You know, it's another, it was a lot of hours to do that <laughs> subjects protocol, though, let me just say. <laughs> Oh, come on, you're an ethicist, Kathy. I understand. It was good for my future career goals, but nevertheless. We're really, we're about, what, a year into our residency quality improvement curriculum here. Can you highlight your most, <laughs> two or three most proud outcomes of the project so we can see where we can go with this? Like, what did those residents achieve? What did those residents achieve in those projects? Oh, thanks. Like, in the projects for the patients that you just the most amazing thing, not the most challenging parts. Okay, I get to. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so I there's um, yeah there there. So okay, I'm so proud of so many things of this. I mean, it, like I said, it was the thorn in my side for many many years because I was like, ah, oh, just like this isn't working and that's not. But it became so so cool. So so we worked. Um, Part of the thing was it was a longitudinal curriculum, and we worked on four different projects that residents kind of came in and out of and added and did PDSAs on. So all four of those have been presented or published in nationally peer-reviewed something. So many of them, one of them's become um, a hospital-wide um, grant that got, um, a hospital-wide project that got a grant that is like almost $100,000. I mean, like just great, great stuff. All of them were presented at peer-reviewed in peer-reviewed settings, be it a poster, publication, platform, et cetera. Um, so that's 
I don't know, two. Um, so that just in and of itself was just, and, and, and there were resident champions. Um, so maybe my second one would be, there were some resident champions, many of who have gone on to still continue to make QI a really big part of their career. Um, so those would be probably my two favorites. It's all very learner and academic centric, but um, the, the, the things that we worked on also were extremely good for our patients. So I know that's three, but, um, but there, there are so many good things that have come out of it. It was hard. It was really hard. The buy-in piece was my most challenging piece because to me I was like but it's gonna help everyone you know and I didn't but but that's helped me in other leadership areas now understanding the buy-in piece was was hard was hard so, Dr. Will be visiting, it like. yes that's why we walk around thank you guys so much